the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Dr. Sam Nadler is our guest from Charlotte. His book is called The Book of Ruth. And uh, we move to Chapter 2, Sam. The Works of Grace, Ruth 2, 1 through 7. Absolutely. And it's a startling uh, perspective we're given uh, in Ruth Chapter 2. Now, the Book of Ruth, of course, it's written about the heroine of the story, a strong believer uh, who uh, trusted the Lord through all kinds of difficulties, uh, Ruth. But it, no, it could be called the Book of Boaz in many ways, uh, because even though he's hidden in the first chapter, just like God uh, is hidden from those who live in unbelief, so uh, God, uh, Boaz was a, a hidden uh, redeemer. In chapter 2, he comes out as uh, the uh, Lord of the harvest uh, with grace, abundant grace, and so he is able uh, to be an instrument of grace into the life of Ruth. Uh, because Boaz uh, was a, a, a kind of distant relative of Naomi's, uh, and therefore, according to Scripture, he was a kinsman redeemer. He could actually help his family. And so we find that by the grace of God, which is mentioned three times in this one chapter, it, the theme of chapter 2 is God's grace, that Boaz, as a man of God, we know he's a man of God in a number of ways, even though some without faith bailed on the place of promise, Boaz uh, was vindicated by his faith by staying in the land of promise, and he was blessed through the very same famine that uh, encouraged the unbelievers to leave. But in any case, in chapter 2, uh, Ruth, in her humility, wants to be a gleaner. That's like a beggar woman coming after the uh, harvesters, picking up what stray grains may have fallen. Uh, and he therefore provides unusual grace. Why? So she could bring it back to her mother-in-law. He was doing this not only to be a blessing directly to Ruth, but indirectly through Ruth to Naomi. This was all of God's plan. But by that grace, through uh, from Boaz, through Ruth, to restore this lost sheep to the house of Israel. And so uh, we're actually finding this going on all over. We're planting congregations, and we're seeing that Gentile believers, when they understand their calling, are instruments of grace as well, sharing good news with Jewish friends, neighbors, co-workers, and fellow students. We're finding great things all over the world as we're planting congregations. Of course, His grace is what's sufficient, Pat. This is what we want our listeners to understand. They can be God's instrument if they'll trust in His all-sufficient grace by faith in Jesus the Messiah. Now, Sam, I want you to talk about grace that overflows, Ruth 2, verses 8 and 9. Sure, absolutely. When we take a look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 8 and and verse 9 there, uh, we are introduced uh, to a wonderful and beautiful picture 
the second aspect of grace uh, that is provided, uh, because that very uh, truth of grace there, uh, we want to understand uh, it had to do with a focus upon the Redeemer. In, in that portion, uh, Boaz says to Ruth, I want you just to work here. Don't go anywhere else. Now, that may seem unusual. After all, she was just a beggar woman. What did he can? But he saw in her, he saw in her life a change that God had made. And therefore, he provided her with protection and provision, but only if she would stay in the very place of promise. And that's a real lesson to all of us, don't you think? Sure. Uh, for those of us who may have all kinds of opportunities to look elsewhere, oh, stick with Jesus. He's the place of promise, and Him is all the blessings for your life now and forever. And so God had a place for her and for everyone who looks to the Lord. Next topic, Sam, the cycles of grace, Ruth 2, 10, 11, and 12. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, we, we're covering so much ground here, even though it may seem to some of our listeners like it's such a small book, uh, but in fact... What we find here is that there is a development of the picture of grace, as you're bringing out that. And so in this section of Scripture, we see uh, what her testimony was like. She was stunned by this grace. Uh, she recognized who she was. She was a very humble person uh, in that she was realistic about the fact she was a Moabite in the land of Israel. She would be seen at best as merely a foreigner with no rights in the land at all, and she might actually uh, be subject to some kind of victimization. Uh, but Boaz protected her. She couldn't understand it, and she cries out, What have I done to find grace in your sight? <laughs> what can it possibly be? Uh, and uh, he says uh, to her, the tes her testimony was clearly known in the community. Her love and care for her mother-in-law, her Jewish mother-in-law, was a testimony, and it was an evident testimony of her faith. Uh, that, and he said that the Lord uh, would reward her uh, for her work, and uh, God would give full wages uh, to her because she came under his protection, the wings of God, as it brings out here. Uh, and Now, this is an important point. When we see that God wants to bless someone, God gives us an insight to know that we should be part of that instrument of blessing. That's exactly what happened here. When we become an instrument of grace, we are part of God's plan and God's program. If you believe that God wants the gospel by his grace through faith in Jesus, if you believe God wants his gospel of grace to go to the Jewish people around you, well, that insight is now part of your calling to be an instrument of grace. And that's what takes place here. And, and therefore we see uh, that her testimony was not overlooked. And some of us might wonder, you know, is, is my life mounting to anything? Your labor is not in vain in the Lord, Paul assures us, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. So also with you, as well as with Ruth, God has a blessing for you, as well as for you, to be an instrument of blessing. Dr. Sam Nadler is with us. His book is called The Book of Ruth. And uh, Sam, of course, is president of Word of Messiah Ministries. <clears throat> now, Sam, grace that satisfies Ruth chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Well, okay, then. Uh, when we take a look at this portion, you know, as a Jewish man who came to faith in the Lord in my mid-20s, 
uh, because someone had the nerve to tell me I needed Jesus as my Messiah, uh, and I mocked that person. Uh, but oh, about a year or so later, I wrote back to that person, thank you for letting me laugh at you, because now I love him too. Mm. Because I found the grace that satisfies. Mm. And that's exactly what takes place here. Uh, we see in this portion of Scripture that what uh, God is doing via Boaz, the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, the grace God is providing through him, through Ruth, to the life of Naomi, it now turns everything around. Uh, now, not only is Ruth recognizing the blessing, but now her mother-in-law is brought back into the fold. She sees it for herself. She thought that God had given up on her. She thought that God had forsaken her. She was bitter about her life, bitter about her treatment. She blamed God and figured God had given up on her as well. But that's never the case, is it, Pat? No. God never gives up on anyone. While there's breath to breathe, there is hope. And so we want to never give up. If God hasn't given up on the Jewish people, how dare we? In fact, Paul writes, has God forsaken his people? In no way. And so if God hasn't forsaken them, neither should we. That's what we see here. She comes around. She, her life is turned around by the grace that she recognizes from the Redeemer, Boaz. And therefore, God had a plan, and her life is changed. That's what takes place. Your life, not only does he summon us by his grace, but he satisfies us by his grace if you will respond to him. If you're listening and you're not yet a believer in Jesus the Messiah, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, that's not the point right now. The point is God is summoning you in his love and his grace to come to him to trust in Jesus. You will find the satisfaction for your soul, not only for the here and now, but forever and ever. Sam, now I want you to talk about grace that restores Ruth chapter 2, 19 through 23. And here we see the climax of the redemptive work. You know, you remember in chapter 1, Naomi was uh, out of God's will, and out of God's will, whatever counsel she was giving to her daughters-in-law, as well intended as she may have thought or not, it could not be according to God's will. But now we find that her life, with the satisfaction that comes from the grace of God, she is now as a new creation uh, she recognizes uh, that God has restored her, and that in restoring her, uh, she now counsels her her uh, daughter-in-law, who she now appreciates. <laughs> you know, it's funny, uh, the, Moabag, uh, the Moabite baggage that she had to bring back with her now all of a sudden looks like a great blessing. That's what God can do through grace. We now see things through his eyes, so to speak. And so when we take a look at that, we realize that Naomi is now saying to her that the counsel, whatever he says to you, this is right from the, from the mouth of God, so to speak. This is what God will have for you. And so Ruth now is able to have the encouragement of her mother-in-law's counsel, just as her mother-in-law received grace of God through Ruth. So now we find fellowship. You see what happens with grace restores us. We're not just brought back to God, which, by the way, would be wonderful in and of itself, but we're actually now in fellowship with all other restored believers, and we find that grace building a community. That's what God had to do with Abraham when he called him. He said, he said that through Abraham he'll make a nation, 
he had one very good believer, but he wanted a group of people, he wanted the whole world, really, to, to know his grace in the Messiah. And that's what goes on. The fellowship is restored, and the blessing is to be had. Now, Sam, it's grace that redeems Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Well, we're going to find some unusual things taking place here, Pat. In chapter 3, uh, we see uh, that Naomi gives counsel, that it sounds a little unusual, to Western ears, to people unfamiliar with uh, the teachings in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, we may find it to be unusual, and when I read some commentators, they really weren't getting the, the idea at all. But the fact of the matter is, now Naomi, it's uh, at the end of, of the, the harvest season, is coming to the end, according to the biblical calendar. We're looking uh, at the summer months here. Uh, the first fruits of Passover and the Feast of Pentecost have come, and now the harvest is all in, with the fall festivals approaching. And so we now get uh, my book, Messiah and the Feast of Israel, show how all of this points to Jesus. Uh, but then if they go to wordmessiah.org, they can get some information there as well about that. But here we see the counsel Naomi now gives her. And when we look at it, we say, is that good counsel? It's godly counsel. It actually is reflecting the truth of God's Word. Because in this section with this counsel, the grace that redeems faith counsel for true, true, true rest, uh, we see here that the counsel has to do with the fact that Naomi knew not only was she a widow, but so was Ruth. And according to the Scriptures, according to Deuteronomy, there was the law of the Leverite marriage. This is the law of love, listeners. God's law of love, that we are to care for one another, our brother's keeper, especially when it has to do with this. God did not want the people of Israel to perish, to fail, and so therefore we had responsibilities in the family. And a kinsman redeemer like Boaz was also someone who could be uh, the bridegroom, and that's what we're going to see in chapter 4, of course. But now we see him uh, in his redemptive role, uh, fulfilling the law of love. And so the counsel that Ruth is given is to have the, and this is going to sound hard for some, to have the intentionality of faith. Faith is intentional. We believe God, we go forward on his word, walk by faith, not sight. And therefore she followed the counsel according to the word of God, and she therefore had that boldness. And by the way, when we walk by faith and boldness, God loves to bless the bold and encourage each one, trust in the Lord and move forward with him. My guest has been Sam Nadler, Dr. Sam Nadler, uh, the author of the Book of Ruth, <clears throat> Hope Fulfilled in the Redeemer's Grace. Sam, wonderful to talk to you. The book is outstanding, and uh, this interview has just been marvelous, and I'm so glad we could catch up here and uh, do this. It's my joy, Pat, anytime. Shalom, everyone. Uh, we're back for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your hosts, Dr. Daniel Forbes and Dr. John Brooks. Families by Designs airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design on the new 950 WTLN. 
20 years of credit counseling and debt management services, more than 36,000 program members freed from credit card debt, nearly $100 million saved in high interest and finance charges. It's Trinity's 20th anniversary, and these are just a few of the milestones we're celebrating as we begin our third decade of helping people become debt-free for keeps. Did you know that members who complete our program save on average more than $20,000 in interest? My name is Mike. From the very first phone call, Trinity brought us relief by stopping all the late fees and collections calls, greatly reducing our interest and consolidating our bills into one easy-to-manage monthly payment. Now we're on track to save nearly $17,000 in finance charges. Happy 20th anniversary, Trinity. Thanks for helping so many save so much. And Trinity can help you, too. Call 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. 1-800-990-6976. The new 950 WTLN getting techie on the weekends with Tech Talk and more. Now at the brand new time, Saturday mornings at 8. Hi, this is Freddie with Tech Talk and more. Join us this week as we discuss flash memories such as SD and micro SD cards. Also, our widget review is on the Nokia Lumina 630. Tech Talk and more from Palm Tree Computer Systems in Oviedo and now with a brand new store in Sanford and Jinx IT. And you can always connect with them at techtalkandmore.com. And don't miss a brand new time now, Saturday morning at 8, right here on the new 950 WTLN. TLN. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Dr. Sam Nadler, our guest in that first half hour, talking about his new book, The Book of Ruth. Uh, we go from Charlotte, North Carolina to St. Paul, Minnesota. Rick Madsen is with us, the apologetic. Nice yeah. to talk to you, Rick. Rick is the uh, apologetic specialist for uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. His new book is out, Faith is Like Skydiving. InterVarsity is the publisher. Faith is Like Skydiving. What do you mean with that, Rick? Well, uh, I as I travel across the country and speak with college students on uh, campuses, uh, we have this session called Stump the Chump, and I'm the chump. <laughs> so students can come and ask any question they want about Christianity. And at first I was giving, uh, you know, answers, replies to students that were pretty abstract and hard to remember and hard to understand, and then I began to develop a series of more concrete images that I could share with students. And the one that I use most often for faith is that faith is like skydiving in that you you look before you leap. Uh, instead of just jumping out of a plane blindly, you'd want to know what's going to happen to you. You'd check out the, the plane and the company and the pilot and all the gear. You'd probably check the gear twice, and you'd want to know that you're going to be safe in this jump. And still, there's no guarantee. So there's an element of uncertainty. There's no proof. But there is a lot of evidence that you're going to be safe. So faith is like skydiving. You still have to jump out of the airplane at some point and trust in your research and trust in the folks that have brought you up there. And in the same way, uh, there's no proof of, you know, absolute philosophical certitude that God exists, but there's tons of evidence that God exists and that Christianity is true, and you do your research, and then at some point you dive out of the plane and you place your faith in Jesus. And the book is uh, illustrations like that uh, throughout yeah. On a variety of topics that, uh, yeah, maybe we could talk about today. Next topic, uh, Rick, play your whole orchestra, you tell us, the cumulative case for faith. Yes. 
Uh, what I mean by that is when you walk into a relationship, maybe with a, a skeptic, uh, you want to have as many uh, tools in your toolbox ready as you can. And um, so, for example, I might say to a skeptical friend, well, there's lots of, a, uh, lots of evidence that Christianity is true. There's the historical Jesus, and there's philosophical and scientific evidence. And then the skeptic might say, now, wait a second, uh, faith doesn't have evidence. Faith is just a blind leap into the dark. And I guess the idea of play your whole orchestra is to say, no, uh, all of the parts of my orchestra, all of the tools in my toolbox are fair game as we talk about the existence of God and the truth of Christianity. I'm not going to allow my skeptical friend to define faith for me. I'm going to come in playing my whole orchestra, and it's up to me how I define my faith, and hopefully my skeptical friend will listen to that. Third topic, how the world came to be the grand designer. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, if, if, uh, if you have a conversation with a skeptic, there's just a few possibilities for how the world came to be. And without getting too technical, I think you can say, well, the world was always there. And, uh, you know, there's some difficulties with that. Or you might say the world uh, just came into existence at a certain point in time. Well, if it came into existence at a certain point in time, then either God made it or it popped into existence all by itself. And so the idea of the uh, grand designer is that the, the world is loaded with the uh, artistry and intent, and one might even say the personality of the creator and the designer, and that we are made in his image. And so I want to bring that alternative explanation to my uh, skeptical friends and say, have you considered the fact that you are a person and that you have a spirit and you have a soul, and that points to a designer who's a spirit and creates the soul and has personality and has wisdom, and that's how you got those gifts in the first place. So that's the sort of dialogue I want to have with a person around the idea of the origin of the universe. The world is like a royal flush, <laughs> a case for the design of the universe. Yeah. Well, the royal flush uh, analogy is one that I use a lot when you talk about all the amazing coincidences that have to have taken place for the world to come into existence and to be as we know it. Um, you know, scientists and philosophers talk about uh, the world is a place where <clears throat> it's uh, inhabitable. And what would it take for our universe to be inhabitable and to, and to exhibit the kind of life that we see? Well, you have all these astounding number of coincidences. And when you start to add one coincidence upon another, it's like winning the lottery over and over and over the same person. But I use the analogy of a royal flush. It's like getting a royal flush a hundred times in a row. If you're sitting at a table with a skeptic, and you get a royal flush, and the odds are like 1 in 600,000 or 1 in 700,000. You get one royal flush, okay, once in a blue moon it happens, you know, but you get another one, and then you get another one, and you get 100 royal flushes in a row. Your skeptical friend sitting there uh, playing cards with you might say, no, wait a second, someone's messing with the cards here. These coincidences are too good to be true. And so you just turn the analogy to, and back on to the universe and say, well, all the coincidences that made the universe possible and inhabitable where we are, is uh, is like getting 100 royal flushes in a row. It's just too good to be true. Someone is messing with the cards. In other words, someone is messing with the universe, and that someone is God. It's, Pat, it's not proof, but it's pretty darn good, you know? It, it's a good convincing argument. Rick Matson is our guest. Faith is like skydiving. That's the name of his new book.
Next topic, Rick, Jesus as the Son of God, and then you uh, simply put a massive conspiracy, question mark? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, I developed this uh, acronym called MODEMS, M-O-D-E-M-S, and each of the letters in the acronym stand for some aspect of the historical case for Jesus. So M is about... uh, uh, monotheism in the first century, that it's very unlikely that Jews would hold to any sort of a polytheism, in other words, belief in several gods. They held to monotheism, and they would not have invented Jesus. <laughs> they already had Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. They would not have invented Jesus. Uh, rather, they discovered Jesus in their midst, much to their surprise. So M stands for the monotheism of the early Jews. And then uh, Modem's M-O stands for the overlapping material, that there's lots of multiple testimonies about the life of Jesus, and that's what historians are looking for. Testimony not just from one source, but from several. And then D stands for for uh, differences, and uh, that if all of your uh, voices, historical voices, are saying exactly the same thing, you think, oh, these guys got together in a room someplace and uh, made this up. But the, the mild differences that you see in the four Gospels point to the fact that Jesus really was a historical figure. And then E goes into uh, embarrassing material. There seems to be material in the Gospels that's counterproductive to the faith. Uh, you know, Jesus' own family sometimes doesn't seem to know him or reject him. Uh, the disciples fall asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus himself is uh, killed and so forth. This seems to be what you might consider, historically speaking, embarrassing material. So M-O-D-E, <laughs> I'm summarizing here, Pat. Uh, M stands for the large number of ancient manuscripts that we have in the Christian tradition, and S stands for some secular sources, sources outside the Christian tradition that talk about the life of Jesus. So M-O-D-E-M-S is a way to remember one's historical arguments for Jesus. And then the massive historical, or the massive conspiracy, I should say, is to say that for these guys just to have made this up, for these fishermen and farmers to have made this up, is a massive conspiracy of, might we say, biblical proportions. It's just too good to be true. It's sort of like believing in the in the uh, lunar landing hoaxes of the 1960s and 70s. People say, well, the uh, United States never really made it to the moon. The, the NASA space program was all a hoax. And if you believe in that as a massive conspiracy, and most thoughtful skeptics don't, then why would you believe this as a massive conspiracy either, that being the life of Jesus? So that's a quick summary, Pat, of quite a few pages there. Rick, tell us, and, uh, tell us about yeah, the tell us about the telephone game. Uh, why the Bible is not full of errors? Yeah, well, you, I, I hear this objection a lot on college campuses. We'll be in a stump the chump session, and a student will say, "Hey, hasn't the Bible been translated and retranslated and mistranslated over the centuries so that the Bible that we have now doesn't resemble at all the Bible that was given to us?" You know, in the first three centuries. And isn't it like the telephone game, where things have been changed just a little bit uh, along the line, and then the next generation got it uh, a little more off, and the next generation is a little bit more off, and so forth, until you have all this major distortion of the original message. And uh, my response to that is, first of all, that uh, translations of the Bible are not based on just fire translations. Translators go back to early manuscripts all the time as they create fresh translations, and that's something that lay people tend not to know. Certainly skeptics often don't know that. And then when I turn the telephone game analogy back on its 
uh, back on its head is to say it's not just one telephone game that we have here. There are several traditions of manuscripts. Scholars call them families of manuscripts that go back to different parts of the ancient world. And when you cross-compare these families of manuscripts, you can weed out the errors, and that's what scholars do. So it's not just one telephone game that's come to us. It's several telephone games, and when you cross-compare the telephone games, you can get back to the original message uh, fairly easily. Then you write about broken world and other images for the problem of suffering and evil. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, uh, I, the notion of the problem of pain, suffering, and evil, it's such a massive topic, and there are so many facets to it, and it can get very technical because it can start to get into predestination and God's sovereignty and foreknowledge and human free will and so forth. And I just, I just find that when I'm out and I'm on the road and the pressure's on and students are asking me questions or I get in some, sometimes these intense conversations, I just need one crystal clear image that I can go to that kind of sums up a lot of the rest of my argument. And that image is broken world. The world is broken because we broke it. God didn't break the world. God is not responsible for suffering. We are. Uh, God created us to be in relationship with Him, and when we said no to that relationship, we fell away from God. We took the world down with us so that our lives are broken, and the world itself is broken. So in Florida, there might be hurricanes and floods and sinkholes and so forth, and that's all part of a broken world. So when I put the, the image and the illustration of Broken World kind of at the center of my conversation with a skeptic, it's something that I can remember really easily, and I can build the rest of my arguments around it. And I just recommend it to your listeners, uh, Pat. Always think about, hey, Broken World, we broke it, the world fell down, or fell away from God when we fell away from God, which is the uh, Genesis 3 story. And when you can use this idea of Broken World, it, it's a good summary for a lot of other parts of the uh, argumentation for a problem of pain, suffering, and evil. Christians behaving badly, <laughs> and yeah. then don't blame the hammer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Christians behaving badly, uh, another really common objection to faith, and a lot of a reason that a lot of folks uh, fall away from the faith and leave the Church is that they see the hypocrisy in the Church. And I think the first thing I want to say is, yes, there is a, a, a fair amount of hypocrisy we have high standards. We often don't live up to those standards, and we need to acknowledge that and take responsibility for that. I have no problem with that. In fact, Christians should be the professionals at acknowledging our mistakes, whether historical mistakes like the Crusades and the Inquisition, or just contemporary mistakes that we make in our personal lives, or, you know, clergy sex scandals and so forth. Let's just acknowledge those and say, yeah, it's out there. We're not proud of that. But uh, on the other hand, uh, it's not always the fault of—it's not the fault of Christianity— it's people who have misused Christianity for their own ends to bring harm to other people. And so the image of the hammer is that if I go out and pound dents in your car with a hammer, do you blame the hammer or do you blame me? In other words, do you blame religion or do you blame people who have misused religion for their own ends? And of course, you blame the people. And Christians should be able to say pretty easily, well, it's sinful people who have turned Christianity, turned the Christian faith, to uh, negative uh, consequences, negative ends, and brought harm to other people. Well, don't blame the hammer. Blame the people who, who have done the damage themselves. And then you might want to bring up some positive examples of how people have used Christianity to bring good to the world. And the one that I use all the time is a Habitat for Humanity. 
And it fits kind of with a hammer image because when you're out working for Habitat for Humanity, building homes, you're swinging a hammer, you're pounding nails, you're helping poor people. And uh, if you know some facts about Habitat for Humanity, that it was founded as a Christian organization, then uh, you can say, yeah, this is a redemptive use of the hammer. My guest is Rick Matson. We've got more with Rick right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Here's Martin Renforth, president of Above and Beyond AC. When you purchase any system or service from Above and Beyond AC, I'll send a check to your church for 10% of your purchase. No matter how large or small, I'll send 10% of the purchase directly to your church. That's the Above and Beyond 10% promise. At Above and Beyond AC, we know you have a lot of AC companies to choose from. We hope you'll choose us, but we encourage you to get two quotes. You'll find that our pricing is always transparent and competitive. Call 407-483-7945 right now to schedule a no-cost replacement estimate for your air conditioning needs. That's 407-483-7945 for Above and Beyond AC. Remember the Above and Beyond 10% promise. When you purchase any system or service from Above and Beyond AC, we'll send a check to your church for 10% of your purchase. Call 407-483-7945 right now to schedule a no-cost replacement estimate for your air conditioning needs. Call 407-483-7945. Rain is in the forecast, which means slippery conditions, unexpected twists, and muscle pain are too. Better get prepared by picking up a can or two of Salon Paws Jet Spray. Salon Paws Jet Spray has two powerful pain-fighting ingredients that you spray right where it hurts. It goes on clear, dries fast, and relieves pain for hours and hours. Look for the blue can with a blue cap. Salon Paws. Powerful relief when and where you need it. Use as directed. Big data may be just another overused buzzword, but storing, sharing, protecting, and recovering big data is a big deal to companies, big or small. Barracuda Networks offers powerful, affordable, yet easy-to-implement solutions for data protection and disaster recovery, email archiving, file sharing, and e-signing, all designed to protect big data and simplify IT. For an online demo or to try any of our storage solutions risk-free for 30 days, visit barracuda.com slash big data. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Rick Matson is with us from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. Rick is the apologetic specialist for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. His new book is out, and we're talking about it. Faith is like skydiving. Rick, religions are like books and other images for discussing religious pluralism. I use that image in conversation because people tend to want to water down religion and say, oh, it's all basically the same, you know? It might be different on the surface, but they're all the same underneath. It's just about loving God and loving other people, and if you do that, and if you're sincere, everything will go okay for you. I guess I want to say, no, religions are like books. The covers are actually somewhat similar. They might say something about uh, God or Brahman or the soul or the spirit or something like that. And it's like walking into the religion section of a bookstore. The covers generally have the same themes, but when you pull the books off the shelf and you read the accounts of the different religions, they tell radically different stories about reality. So the, uh, the story that 
Islam tells about reality is way different than that which is told about, uh, from a Buddhist perspective or a Hindu perspective. So religions are like books. They're more the same on the outside, but they radically diverge inside in the content. And then if you know a few of the contradictions between religions, and the one that I use most often is that Christianity talks about God as Trinity, and Islam talks about God as just one, monotheism. Well, you can't have both Trinity and a single God, unitary God, at the same time. That is a, definitely a contradiction. And if we take the contradictions between religions seriously, then what we're really going to do is honor the various distinctives of the religions and not try to water them all down and say they're all basically the same. And it's those differences and it's those distinctives that will help Christianity stand out from the rest. And then the next thing you go to is the historical Jesus and the authority of Jesus, and that's what really makes Christianity uh, distinct from the others. Rick, can those who've never heard of Jesus be saved? The (laughs) the homeless person analogy. Right. Yeah, uh, I often hear the objection that Christianity is a Western religion, and that if you grew up in a Hindu village in India, you'd have never heard of Jesus, and would God hold that against you? And theologians debate these issues. They go round and round and round, and I don't necessarily want to enter that debate, but I do want to say that every person in the world has the opportunity to see God in what uh, theologians call general revelation. General revelation is nature and conscience. It's Romans 1 and Romans 2. Romans 1 says that uh, everyone in the world is without excuse because the glory and goodness of nature is apparent. It's visible to everybody. And everyone can see that there's a, uh, a God by looking at the glory of nature. And then secondly, uh, if you look at uh, the law of God written on a human heart, and that's Romans chapter 2, um, that's uh, called conscience by theologians. So nature without and conscience within. If we pay attention to these things, uh, we can come to the conclusion that uh, they didn't just pop into existence by themselves, that uh, they point to a personal and powerful God who holds us accountable for our actions. And for the person who's never heard of Jesus, it's sort of like seeing a homeless person on the corner. Uh, God is there in plain sight. And, boy, when I drive up to a corner and there's a homeless person standing there, they've got a sign that says, you know, we'll work for food, or God bless, I'm hungry, or whatever, it's so easy not to see that person. And it's sort of a matter of the will. You have to intentionally look to see that person who's holding that sign. And in the same way, Clues to God's existence and God's care for us are everywhere, but we have to be willing and able to look and to see the God who's there in plain sight. And if we look to nature without and uh, and to conscience within, and we intentionally pay attention, we will see God, just as we will see the homeless person on the corner if we take the time to look. Next topic, Rick Matson is our guest. His book is called Faith is Like Skydiving. Chapter 11, Hell is Like an Empty Pub. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of a C.S. Lewis argument. Uh, Lewis argued that hell essentially is the absence of God. I mean, it might be more than that. There's some pretty thorny uh, passages, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, about the terrors of hell. But at least on a minimalist definition, hell is a place of loneliness. It's a place of separation from God. And if we think about God as Trinity and family, if we think about God as the author of community, and if we think about isolation as being something that's uh, not of God, then hell is an empty pub. In other words, 
it's a common notion to think, hey, I want to go party with my friends in hell. I don't want to uh, sit around in heaven and play harps and sit on clouds and get bored into eternity. I'm going where my friends are. And when I get to hell, I'm going to the bar, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to be drinking and, uh, you know, laughing it up into eternity. And I think what I want to say to that is, no, hell is actually like an empty pub. You go there expecting to find your friends. But the God of community who made those friendships in the first place is not there. And the God of community, uh, him being absent, you will spend eternity alone in this pub. Now, it's not a... uh, uh, it, it's, it's an image that's supposed to capture uh, the, the loneliness and isolation of life away from God. And uh, I find it effective because students can remember it, because they like pubs, you know, college campus students. And even older folks who may have spent a lot of time over the years in bars and so forth, uh, it's a good image to use with them, kind of with this uh, C.S. Lewis twist of hell being the absence of God. Talk to us about elephant traps and other images for science and faith. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, you know, skeptical friends who often are what I like to call science only, they will say, well, I look under the microscope and I don't see God. And we can't prove God scientifically. Well, it may be the case that we can't, uh, in the end, prove God scientifically. I think there's a lot of scientific evidence, but maybe not absolute proof. Okay, so if you grant that for a second, I might say to my skeptical friend, well, you need the right tools to find God. And it's true that you can't necessarily see God under the microscope. And it's sort of like uh, setting out mousetraps to catch elephants. And you set out your mousetraps, and you go out uh, two or three days later, and you check your mousetraps, and there's no elephants in the mousetraps. And you say, well, therefore, elephants don't exist. And that's how science is. Science is like setting mousetraps to find elephants. It's like setting uh, traps to find God. It's the wrong tool for the job. If you want to find God, you need to set God traps. If you want to uh, catch elephants, you have to set out elephant traps. And so if you want to catch God, yes, you can use science. Science is a a very helpful tool, but then you're back to playing your your whole orchestra of tools, uh, your whole orchestra of instruments. You can use philosophy. You can use history. You can use anthropology. There's a whole variety of arguments that you can marshal together to make this uh, cumulative case for the existence of God. And even if one of the tools uh, can't give you the proof that you want, when you add up all the tools together, those are your elephant traps right there uh, for hunting and finding God, you might say. Rick, give me a minute and a half on miracles or like a hole-in-one. <laughs> now, I'm a big golfer, Pat, and I play golf in Orlando and a lot of other places in Florida, so uh, it, it's great, but I think uh, one reason people don't believe in miracles is that they go back to the argumentation of David Hume, the uh, 18th century philosopher. And Hume said, well, miracles are so unusual that they probably don't exist at all, and you just can't trust the testimony of people who say they've seen miracles, because their testimony is not trustworthy. They are mistaken, or they're exaggerating, or they want something to be true, so they see it out there like, uh, you know, castles and cloud formations. And so the hole-in-one analogy says, well, what if you had a nine-year-old girl who went out and made a hole-in-one her very first time on the golf lane, on the golf course? Would you believe that? And the skeptic would say, well, no, because it's so unusual that it probably never happened, and the testimony about it is probably not true anyway. But in fact, in the story that I construct here, uh, a nine-year-old girl did make a hole-in-one on a 175-yard hole uh, 
her first time out on the links. And it's meant to show that just because something is unusual doesn't mean that it's impossible. And just because miracles are unusual, or at least the most spectacular ones are unusual, the small ones happen all the time. The bigger ones, just because they're unusual, doesn't mean they didn't happen. Just because there aren't a ton of other resurrections around, in fact, there are none, doesn't mean that Jesus' resurrection didn't happen. In fact, it did happen, and we should be willing to believe it on the eyewitness testimony of excellent witnesses. Rick Madsen has been our guest. We've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. It's time. Your old, inefficient windows and doors have to go. Maybe they're drafty, not working like they should, or just old and outdated. So call Pella, the start-to-finish window and door replacement solution. A Pella professional will come to you and help you choose the right products for your home and budget. And on installation day, a Pella expert installer will lead their team, with most projects completing in as little as a day. Exceptionally energy-efficient Pella products can brighten rooms and help block the outside noise your current windows and doors may be letting in. Plus, when you work with Pella, your windows and doors and their installation, including labor, are covered for up to 10 years. That's the Pella Care Guarantee. See Pella.com for details. Now is the time to upgrade to Pella. Schedule a free consult today and you'll get 40% off qualifying Pella projects or special financing. Certain restrictions apply. Visit Pella.com slash radio or call 800-331-3950. That's 800-331-3950. 800-331-3950. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Thanks so much for joining us for the weekly Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We always look forward to our visits with you. Uh, Dr. Sam Nadler joined us in the first half hour from Charlotte, and uh, we spoke about his new book, The Book of Ruth. And then Rick Matson from St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, his uh, new book is called Faith is Like Skydiving. Uh, appreciate the, uh, both of those guests joining us. Uh, please visit my website. It is patwilliams.com. The Twitter page is uh, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, please check out my latest book. It's out. It's called Ahead of the Game, uh, the Pat Williams story. It's uh, in bookstores now and up on Amazon.com as well. In the meantime, uh, enjoy church tomorrow with your family and have a terrific week ahead here in Central Florida. And we'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to AM 950 WTLN in Orlando, Florida. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reasoning. The new 950 WTLN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.